Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the eighth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is about checks and balances. What are they and are they working? We'll have a conversation on how the three branches of government check each other, executive, judicial, legislative. Why did it matter to the framers? Why should it matter to us? Of what importance is mutual and self-regard among the branches, each branch protecting its own institution and backing up the other branches? And then what role do we play as the public? Are we one of the checks and balances? Are political consequences? And could they create a limit on extremism? Does it seem to be working now? Why or why not? This show was pre-recorded on September 12th. You can send your comments to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Andrew Rudlevich. Andy is the chair of the Department of Government and Legal Studies, the Thomas Brackett Reed Professor of Government at Bowdoin College. Welcome, Andy. You've been our guest once before. Pleased to have you back. Great to be with you. And Kim Shepley. Kim is the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Professor of Sociology and International Affairs in the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs and the, and the University Center for Human Values. We're very pleased to have you here today, Kim. Thanks for joining us. Lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So let's get started. Uh, Andy, let me put it to you first. Uh, you're sort of the legal historian, government guy here. What are checks and balances anyway, and why were they important to the founders? Well, uh, the basic idea is that no one person or entity should be able to do too much, that power should not be concentrated uh, in one branch of government in this case. And the framers of the Constitution, having sort of as a bad model, the British crown uh, right in front of them, wanted to make sure that they had a system where you would be able to have basically competing constituencies weigh in on any policy that was moving through. A lot of veto points in the system, right? And so you didn't want too much power, obviously, in the executive. You didn't want too much power in the legislative. They were actually in some ways more fearful about that at the time of the writing of the Constitution. You didn't want there to be mob rule, right? And you didn't want there to be uh, too much power in the state to be to be the federal government, but also vice versa. And so it's this balancing act. Uh, the framer, certainly James Madison in the Federalist Papers, uh, writes eloquently about human nature and the idea that uh, people are ambitious. Um, if we were to be run by angels, uh, then we'd be good. Wouldn't have to worry about creating a structure of government that would have internal checks and balances. Um, but we're out of luck. Heaven has not yet come back to earth. And so we need to make sure that we design a constitution where, again, the different branches actually have a, a foothold in each other's business, as it were, and are able to make sure that there's not a concentration of power in any one part of the government. And in modern states, I mean, it's all about power and concentration of power. Kim, I, I, how do we say see this playing out in when it's working? Does it work well? And when it goes wrong, what goes wrong? Well, I think, as, as Andrew said, it, the point of it is that no one entity shall have all the power. So, you know, you have the legislature drafting laws, but then the president carries them out. 
you have the president carrying them out, but then the courts get to say, did he carry it out as it was designed? And so there's this kind of constant circulation where one actor acts and another actor can say, no, not really. That's how it's supposed to work in order to keep power from getting out of line. The problem is, of course, that you design in multiple veto points. And, you know, when the framers wrote the U.S. Constitution, political parties were not on their mind. They didn't imagine that there would be blocks of legislatures, uh, legislators acting in a concerted way. They didn't imagine that certain blocks of legislators would work with the president and others would try to block the president. And so what's happened is that in addition to the kind of multiple veto points designed into the Constitution to check public power, what we've seen is that new checks have arisen as the Constitution has you know, come into maturity and also, frankly, as political actors have learned how to game the Constitution so that now it seems like nothing can be done. <laughs> so that's the downside of checks and balances, that everybody vetoes each other and then you know, the government is fiddling while the country is burning, you know, mm-hmm. um, the reason why you had them in the first place was that you were very worried that one actor or another would run away with the whole thing. So it's a, you know, there, this is that you have to have the government designed to be just right in between two extremes. So Andrew, give us an historical example. Like, what does it look like when it's actually working correctly? The Constitution is written uh, in pretty vague language over time. It's really designed to be implemented by being implemented. Uh, you know, the intercontestation of the branches is not that well defined in the original document. And so the Kim's point is right. This is a Goldilocks kind of document, right? They're hoping that it will be enough to give sort of energy to the government while also making sure it doesn't run amok. You know, the notion of uh, separation of powers is on their mind and they're thinking, well, but if you separate the powers entirely, then they're not going to be able to check each other. Um, And so there's going to be overlap, right? With the veto power president has some legislative authority with the power, as Kim said, to um, basically create legislation, create the government, uh, the power of the purse. All of these are great checks against the executive in the way that he, someday she, may want to uh, implement the law and the judiciary, of course, um, while this is not entirely clear in the Constitution itself, grew pretty quickly to have this power of judicial review. And so you see these things. Interestingly, this is not maybe a I'll be curious, Kim's view on this, if she counts this as a success, but I would actually count a very early case, Marbury v. Madison, as an example of this. Because as I say, the power for the court to weigh in into the constitutionality of legislation is not specified in the Constitution. Uh, Alexander Hamilton and the Federalist Papers took it for granted this would be a power, but it wasn't there. So, Andrew, Uh, but that case was an early case. Like, that was very early. Yeah. yeah, Okay. Talk a little bit about what it said so that people will follow. Well, yeah. So, this is a case where. There is an appointment by John Adams, who's leaving office. Uh, He wants, so we're already, we're talking about executive power here. Uh, Congress has passed a law um, in the, called the Judiciary Act, uh, very early law, 1789, uh, to allow the president to appoint these uh, justices of the peace, basically. They're not full-scale federal judges. Anyway, this guy Marbury has been appointed, but he's been appointed very late in the day. It's sort of one of these things where, you know, Thomas Jefferson is about to walk in the door as president. John Adams is frantically sitting before the fireplace until the stroke of midnight, right, trying to get these things out so that he can effectively pack the judiciary with his own supporters. 
and uh, Marbury is one of those guys. But the thing is, clock strikes 12, uh, the Adams administration turns into a pumpkin, and suddenly Marbury's warrant for his appointment is signed. It's official, but he hasn't actually received it. It's sitting on the desk waiting to get to him. And the Adams administration leaves, Jefferson administration comes in, um, James Madison is now the Secretary of State, and they decide they're not going to send that to Marbury. Uh, Marbury sues. He says, hey, look, I've been appointed. I should have that position. Um, and ultimately, it goes to the Supreme Court. So we have Congress that's passed a law. We have the administration acting on that. Then another president trying to overturn that decision goes to the courts. And John Marshall, who is the chief justice of the Supreme Court at that point, uh, basically uh, tries to figure out a way that the court can assert its power without getting slapped down by the new administration, right? How to actually work productively within this checks and balances system. Um, and so effectively what he does is he says that uh, Marbury has a right to this appointment. It was signed, everything's official, um, but the court can't give it to him because of the way the Judiciary Act of 1789 was written. Um, without going into too much detail, he argues that uh, the Congress at that time had added a new authority to the Supreme Court that the Constitution did not allow. Therefore, that part of the act was unconstitutional. Therefore, sorry, Mr. Marbury, you're right in every way, but we can't help you. So now Thomas Jefferson, who is facing off against the Supreme Court, you know, is in an interesting pickle because he effectively won the case. He won the case, but the judiciary managed to assert a brand new power for itself in a way that is not going to get overturned by the other branches of government. And so I think that's an interesting case where you have maneuverings between the branches and sort of, again, this uh, idea of the judicial branch asserting its own ambition, if you will, in a way that is going to allow it to be long term a productive partner in this system of checks and balances. Jim, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, so I think that's a it's a great story, and I agree with the way that Andrew told it. Um, I think what's so striking uh, about the way the Supreme Court first exercised its awesome power to basically overturn uh, statutes of Congress was that it did it in a case where it had no effect, mm -hmm. which is to say it asserted the power in a way that actually denied itself power, weirdly. you know. So in other words, it was a modest assertion of an extraordinary power. And in many ways, when things work, I think that's why it's such a great example. The branches work together by defending their own power, but not in such a way that they obliterate the power of the other branches. You know, And that requires a certain kind of forbearance, right? I mean, the Supreme Court could have come out and said, not just, you know, Marbury, but like all of them, Right, they should get there. I mean, they could have expanded the case. They could have made it more consequential. They could have gotten in the president's face and Congress's face, and they didn't do it. So part of what the system relies on is not just what's legal, right? But what it what would be improper to do because it violates the spirit of the arrangement. And and the the spirit, these norms, or what the Brits call conventions, are just as important as like the black letter law or what the Constitution says. So Marbury versus Madison is a great example because the court put itself into the game without knocking the other ones out of it. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you're talking about the way in which each institution has to stand up for its own power, mm -hmm. but it also has to back up and respect the power of the other institutions. And I've sometimes heard the whole Watergate thing talked mm -hmm. about 
in this regard. Would you agree that that's a good example where checks and balances actually work? I mean, actually, that was another example I was going to raise yeah. because yeah, that's ahead. a case. It's obviously in some ways much more controversial uh, or confrontational or both, perhaps. It winds up in the departure of a president uh, from office involuntarily, technically voluntarily, he resigned. But it is one that uh, implicates, yeah, I mean, executive authority, uh, the role of Congress in a number of different roles. Uh, it deals with the courts, of course, that wind up weighing in on matters of executive privilege and of their own uh, control over the need, for example, in a criminal case to get defend uh, to get evidence that could be useful in that case. Um, and it also includes the role of the public, but also, as Kim rightly pointed out, these norms, right? The idea uh, that one of the things being investigated is the violation of these norms, like the independence, for example, of the Justice Department and that justice itself needs to be uh, apart from presidential influence or manipulation, uh, even when it is technically true that the Department of Justice is part of the executive branch and thus subject to the hierarchical control of a chief executive. Um, but the idea that the president would be somehow above the law or be able to manipulate an investigation, you know, you remember the famous Saturday Night Massacre, three levels of people quit or are fired. Um, right. That shocked people, right? Yeah. It was a, a huge deal. And, you know, it's we need a little bit of uh, shock in a way to make sure public shock to make sure that these uh, um, processes are enforced but that's an example too where there was bipartisan consensus on the part of congress that they needed to do their jobs as legislators um, through in that case the impeachment process ultimately uh, but even before that right investigations that were conducted were largely on a bipartisan basis and so the notion of defending you know, the broader integrity of the governmental system against uh, a rogue actor. That's something that we saw very much uh, alive then. And, you know, not to give a spoiler alert, but maybe a little less, a little yeah. less so now. So can the court rules that Nixon had to turn it over and he, you talk about that. So he didn't say, make me. He just, he, well, <laughs> oh, no, go ahead. Right before, in fact, this is what got me to go into constitutional law. I might, I will date myself by saying that I had just started as a journalist, right? When all this stuff broke out and this was the heyday of journalism, right? We're going to mm -hmm. talk, I think later about the fourth estate, but you know, the whole, um, the connection that tracked this, you know, this two bit burglary of the democratic national headquarters back to the president was done not by the justice department, but it was done by investigative journalists. And the Justice Department kind of tagged along with its investigation after that. So, you know, so that shows you that actually journalism mattered. And I might say that there's another feature here that we need to kind of figure into the mix of checks and balances. I tried to add norms to, to Andrew's, you know, description of the formal law. Mm -hmm. I want to also add facts, you know, and I think what we forget is that the burglary happened in advance of the 72 election. And it happened because the Nixon people were trying to figure out Democratic Party strategy so they could undermine it. And I think to this day, it remains an unanswered question of whether they got the weakest possible candidate in 1972 that they could have gotten in part because they succeeded, right? I mean, it was a blowout election, right? I think only Massachusetts had electoral college votes for McGovern. Mm -hmm. and McGovern didn't even win his own state. So it was part of a general campaign to undermine the 72 election, which produced Nixon's victory. And he didn't step down until 1974. So two years later, which felt like forever at the time. 
And what happened was that gradually as the hearings, Congress had hearings uh, and they brought witnesses and they weren't like the current, um, you know, January 6th hearings, which are a little bit more stage managed in a way. They're scripted. The hearings in, in 90, uh, in 73 and seven, in 73, summer of 73, mm-hmm. were, the, were hearings that were actually producing evidence for the first time. Members of Congress and their staff were as surprised as the TV audience about what was coming out in those interviews. And what was interesting was that the Republicans started off resisting this committee and they didn't want to participate. There were not equal numbers. They were trying to deny a bipartisan committee. There were some, but eventually they came around because they were persuaded by evidence. So I just want to introduce norms matter and facts matter. Mm -hmm. And it matters that you've got people on both sides that recognize both that norms govern beyond the law and that facts and evidence matter even when they go against your guy. And, you know, I'm afraid that, you know, just again, spoiler alert, that we're, we're in a situation now where both of those things are, are not true. Um, mm. But just as you asked about that, if I can just say one thing about the Supreme Court case, um, the Supreme Court case also came kind of late in the story. And the Supreme Court case came after it was discovered that Nixon had taped all these conversations in the Oval Office. And the question arose in the context of a criminal case, something that's going to matter a lot now going forward in the next few months as we see what's going to be happening here. And the Supreme Court ruled not that Nixon had to turn over everything Congress wanted. That wasn't the question, actually. The question was whether Mm -hmm. Nixon had to turn over tapes that he had made while president as part of an ongoing criminal investigation into his aides. So the precedent that we have on the books says that if you've got a criminal investigation going, the president may not withheld, withhold even records that are arguably subject to executive privilege. That had not really been determined before that point. What that case stands for is the argument that executive privilege doesn't matter if you've got a criminal investigation and that's relevant evidence. So, you know, the Nixon tapes case is going to be very much on our minds in uh, the weeks and months to come. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is checks and balances. What are they and are they working? Our guests are Kim Chappelle, the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Professor of Sociology and International Affairs in the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs and the University Center for Human Values, and also Andrew Rudolevich, Chair of the Department of Government and Legal Studies, the Thomas Brackett Reed Professor of Government at Bowdoin College. This program was pre-recorded on September 12th. No listener calls are being taken. So I just want to ask you, just to answer a sort of a Civics 101 question, how do, how, what are the checks on the Supreme Court? What are the checks on the president? And what are the checks on the Congress? And if you can do it in two minutes, I'd really appreciate it. All right, quick. Um, so the checks, I'm going to actually start um, by noting that Congress is Article 1, and it actually has the fewest checks on it, I would say. If a concerted supermajority of Congress wants to act in a certain way, they kind of can, you know, within the bounds of broad constitutionality. So they can pass the laws, they can override, of course, a presidential veto and so forth. The presidential powers, really all, almost all of them come with an asterisk, right? The president's, again, the power to veto can be overridden. Um, President can't, we hope, interpret a law that hasn't been actually passed, can't spend money that hasn't been appropriated, can't implement a treaty unilaterally, needs Senate ratification. Most high-level appointments need to be confirmed by the Senate. Uh, And you go down the list, really, there are some things that are 
unchecked, the pardon power actually notably among them. Um, but in general, uh, most of the powers in Article Two, the presidential uh, article of the Constitution, do come with some kind of reservations, if you were, or as I say, an asterisk, right? You've got to check the fine print. Uh, on the courts, uh, Article Three, it's a very short article. It doesn't say very much at all. Um, it says there's going to be a Supreme Court. It doesn't actually say how many people will be on it. Uh, and then there'll be lesser courts, uh, inferior courts that Congress shall create. Uh, and there is some power, you know, obviously in the courts then to uh, rule on the constitutionality of legislation or of presidential action. We've talked about that. Uh, one of the checks on the courts could be that you can't rule in an advisory way. The courts can't just decide, hey, what they're doing over there is unconstitutional, right? There has to be a case, um, which means that the person bringing the case has to have standing to bring that case, which usually means they have to have been harmed in some way. Um, and that kind of limits the, the scope of things that people can challenge that actually make their way into the court system in the first place, though it has to be said courts have gotten kind of generous, I think, in allowing people to sue. Um, and for that matter, Congress has too. They've actually passed statutes that broaden the ability of people to sue and to provide that kind of check. Um, another check, of course, is that Congress can, as we've heard talk about, change the size of the Supreme Court. They can change the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court in matters that are appealed to them, though uh, not in what the court hears originally without it ever going through the lower court system. And so they, Congress can technically rule things out of congressional uh, uh, sorry, of the court's uh, venue and to say, you know, this is something that's not going to go to the courts. And so, you know, those are some of the checks there. As I say, checks on Congress are less because, again, with enough members of Congress, um, they can remove the president. They can impeach and then remove the president from office. Um, again, they can change the size of the Supreme Court. They can override vetoes. They can spend money more or less as they wish. But again, the, the biggest check there is the structural division of Congress into a House and a Senate. Uh, and as we started talking about earlier, the partisan divisions within those divisions. And so the uh, large problems of collective action are perhaps the largest check on congressional behavior. So Congress doesn't like a, a Supreme Court decision. Let's just take Dobbs, for example. Mm -hmm. What can they do about it, Kim? Yeah, well, Dobbs is such a great example because um, what the Supreme Court says is that there is no federally protected right to an abortion. In other words, the Constitution says nothing. Now, what that means is that Congress could enact a statute saying, well, we'll say something. We will put into a statute everything Roe said. It's within the Congress's power. The Supreme Court did not say that there's a right to life. You know, it, it, I mean, yet, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we, we don't know where they're going. Um, but, you know, Congress, in many of the decisions the court makes, it leaves Congress room to act. So that's actually a check. There's kind of a norm, again, it's a norm, not a law, about the Supreme Court, that they tend to rely very lightly on, on saying that the Constitution says no to things. They tend not to rule like that, even when they're ruling on constitutional questions. So very often, Congress could come back and it could change things. So, for example, a lot of these religious liberty cases that the, that the current Supreme Court is is making kind of at an astonishing rate, Congress could come back and pass another law that explains exactly what the rights are of religious organizations. The court has not foreclosed on a, as a constitutional matter a lot of congressional room to alter exactly how those rights are realized when there are competing claims. So the court very often leaves room to Congress 
It's the fact that Congress can't do anything <laughs> that makes the court more powerful, right? Now, there's also another power which I want to mention, which is constitutional amendment. If the Supreme Court says, you know, like, for example, one of the places where you would need a constitutional amendment is when the Supreme Court held that the Second Amendment right to bear arms is an individual right. That was shocking. Nobody thought that before the Supreme Court decided that. In order to make that not an individual right, that would require a constitutional amendment. So there is the constitutional amendment process. And at the time that the Constitution was written, the idea was to make that hard, but not impossible. Under present politics, it's impossible. Yeah. So a lot of what's made the court powerful is that the checks on it have been neutralized by the other things that have happened since. There were checks there. Those checks no longer function, I think, the way they were designed to function. I want to come back to why the checks aren't working in a minute, but I, I want to go through some of this fourth branch stuff and um, the deep state and the professional civil service and stuff like that, and then come back on the checks and balances. So what what do people mean when they talk about the different fourth branch institutions and why are they important in the system? I know you've done a bit of work, Andrew, on the civil service. Why don't you go first? I know Kim has a lot. Sure. To say so there, yeah, as you said, there are different definitions maybe of who gets counted as the fourth branch, but I'm going to count the bureaucracy here as the fourth branch for, for my pick, if as it were. Um, keep in mind, there is an executive branch. There's a president, of course, who is chief executive. And there's some language in the constitution that uh, implies that the president is hierarchically superior, for example, to department heads, um, but no departments are created directly in the Constitution. This is all left for Congress to do. Uh, and so, you know, we've had a, a wildly uh, varying number of departments and government employees over time, but it has built up, you know, notably in the 20th century. We have kind of, um, you know, punctuated equilibria, right, where a crisis will occur and then we'll move to a new level of the the rights and responsibilities, the scope of government. Um, and so obviously the the New Deal, uh, trying to bring the U.S. out of uh, the Great Depression is one of those points. World War II, just there, almost immediately thereafter, you know, the Cold War solidifies some of the national security bureaucracy that's been created. You've got a wide range of uh, legislative enactments in the 1960s, right, through the Great Society, and then a huge wave of regulation that follows that with regards to environmental and uh, consumer safety uh, policy. And so, you know, on and on, add up to the pandemic, right, with, you know, trillions of dollars of new spending and the creation of new government programs, and all of that has to be administered. Uh, and so this rise of the administrative state, uh, descriptively, the deep state, if you don't like it, is a, you know, kind of a response to the place of the United States in the world. But it also means we have two and a half million civilian government employees, maybe another million and a half in uniform. It depends when and how you count. Um, but if we're talking about four million people in the executive branch, then obviously the president is not directly supervising all of them at once. Add to that the fact that Congress has created these agencies, these programs that these agencies are going to administer, and they come with their own conditions attached, right? Not only do you create the education department and later you create, you know, something like the No Child Left Behind law, you know, you say, here's what you're going to do. Here's how you're going to operate. And if the president says, don't do this, but the law says, do this, then somebody in that 
department really has to do what the law says, not what the president says. That's a very frustrating thing for presidents frequently. <laughs> and so, you know, parallel with all this is the development in the late 19th century of a professional civil service, right? Moving away from the idea that everybody who held a government post was an ally of the winning political party. Political patronage. Right? Exactly. So mm-hmm. the patronage ideals, and, you know, I'm sitting in a town, uh, you know, well, sitting about a 50 feet from a library named after Nathaniel Hawthorne. Nathaniel Hawthorne, great author, also political hack, right? <laughs> Most of his uh, authorship was supported by being a no-show government employee, thanks to his friend Franklin Pierce, right, who was later president. You know, they were a year apart at Bowdoin, and uh, Pierce made sure Hawthorne got all these jobs so he could actually do what he wanted to do, which was to write. Um, and I understand this is a digression, but we have an educated listener group here and uh, they may want to read the beginning of the Scarlet Letter, right? There's a whole preface where Hawthorne actually starts ranting against patronage politics, mostly because the Democrats had just lost and he was out of a job. So we move away from that, though, by the time we get after the Civil War, where it becomes clear that a party-driven system is not really creating very effective governance, where we're asking the government to do more. Uh, And so from 1883 on and fits and starts, we have the development of what's called a merit service, right? You have to prove that you have some expertise for the job, very least take a test to show that you have the qualifications to actually uh, serve in one of these offices. And some of these qualifications are quite complicated. Some are relatively straightforward. But over time, this has meant that uh, the bulk of government employees are not hired on the grounds of their political affiliation. They're not really even allowed to express their political affiliation, certainly not in their official capacity, and supervised by political appointees. But a lot of important work is done by people who are supposed to be sheltered, not supposed to be fired on the grounds that uh, they are of the wrong party um, or that they have, you know, in the case I mentioned before, followed the uh, dictate of statute rather than what the president would prefer. So, Kim, so, how does yeah. this how does this fourth branch actually work as a check? Sorry. Um, yeah. So uh, so the, the way that this uh, it, it's, it may sound weird to the listeners, right, to hear something about fourth branch. You've heard of the fourth estate. That's journalism. Yeah. But fourth branch is increasingly being used by people who look at governments around the world and they ask, how is it that you keep your democracy? How is it that you keep the democracy in the sense that whoever wins elections can actually take power, that there's actually a competition that, you know, the bums can be thrown out when the people decide they've had enough of the bums. You know, that's sort of the essence of the system. And so there's a whole set of institutions, the civil service being one of them, that it can't be captured by one party so that it blocks what happens when the next party comes in. But there's a whole bunch of others. And, you know, given that this is a League of Women Voters broadcast, I want to say the election system is a big part of that, you know, and the U.S. has a weird one because we run federal elections through state rules um, and many elect many state um, election systems devolve things very much locally to local communities. So we have an extremely decentralized system. And I think what we've been increase- increasingly seeing are pressures on that system. The decentralization is a good thing because it means it can't all be captured at once. But the decentralization is also a weakness because it means that many of the people out there in the capillaries of the system don't have a lot of big force behind them to defend them from overwhelming political pressure to tilt an election one way or another. So the democracies rely on having an independent election apparatus 
constructed in many different ways, but it's got to be buffered from the contestants, you know, so that they're not the ones deciding who counts and how much and which ballots do you keep and which ballots do you throw out. So election offices are crucial. You know, it's also absolutely crucial to have things like, you know, as we were talking about the problem of an independent justice department, you know, the U.S. goes so far back that justice was just a ministry under the president. But increasingly now, a lot of governments are wrestling with the question of how do you keep the prosecutor from being captured by the executive? Is that just going to be a power wielded against political enemies and used in defense of friends? Or do you need that to be more independent? If you look around the world, you see things like ombudsman's offices, anti-corruption offices, audit offices, and so on. We might think, actually, since uh, Andrew mentioned going back to the New Deal and the rise of the administrative state, the Federal Reserve, you know, mm-hmm. having an independent central bank. Modern governments are built around having a certain sphere for partisan influence, a neutral sphere for judging, but then a growing number of agencies and institutions that keep those political branches from capturing everything. And that's what I mean by these fourth branch institutions. And they're absolutely crucial to running a democracy. Yeah, this role of buffering, if I could just jump on, is is the key thing here, right? There's got to be some way for presidential order to be sort of examined, to look at it in relationship to the law. Um, and for that person who's making the assessment to actually be objective about it uh, and thus what it comes down to is you shouldn't be able to fire them if they make a decision you don't like. And when people threaten the civil service, it's usually by, by that method, by threatening to fire people. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Andrew Rudolevich, Chair of the Department of Government and Legal Studies at Thomas Brackett Reed Professor of Government at Bowdoin College, and Kim Shepley, Lawrence S. Rockefeller Professor of Sociology and International Affairs in the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs and the University Center for Human Values. Our topic today is checks and balances. What are they? Are they working? This show was pre-recorded. Send your comments or questions to news at weru.org. Put Democracy Forum in the subject line. I'm racing through that because I can't wait to ask you this question about the fourth branch and inspectors general and this whole Mm. business with the Secret Service. Now, like in light of the importance of these independent things, what do you make of that? Kim, go first. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, the question is who guards the guardians, right? So who actually keeps track of all of this? And the role of of inspectors general is a really interesting one. So this also was a kind of um, innovation that was designed to make sure that these independent agencies are not being captured and that they run properly. And that there's a way for people who work in the agencies to report corruption, to report illegality, to report malfeasance. Um, And so many agencies, not all of them, but many important agencies in the U.S. federal government have by statute these inspectors general. Now, they, they work in the agency, but they're not of the agency. And one of the crucial questions that's, again, arising now is how do you ensure that those people are independent? right? Because they're also appointed through a political process. They are supposed to be persons of the highest integrity. They have a series of rules and laws that they are supposed to follow, including, among other things, reporting to Congress in cases where, particularly in the the ones in the intelligence um, agencies, report to Congress when something's going amiss so that Congress can exercise its powers over this now sprawling executive branch. 
Um, and by and large, IGs have done a really pretty good job. The problem is that the more powerful they are, the more the temptation grows to capture them politically. And I think we're now seeing the rise of the potentially politically captured <laughs> inspector generals. So this is, again, something that we're going to be working through in the next months and years. Um, but with every independent agency, the more powerful it gets, the more the political tentacles reach out and want to grab it for their own side. You want to comment on that, Andrew? No, I think that's a great summary. I mean, this is one of the post-Watergate reforms, actually, at least the United States version of Inspectors General, where Congress, again, has tried to deal itself back into the game after the Vietnam War and Watergate show you know, how little influence Congress had over key processes at that point. And so they want to know what's happening in this big executive branch. Um, you know, they create this position. Um, but as Kim notes, you know, over time, presidents, uh, I'd say President Reagan maybe is the first to sort of figure out, hey, if I fire all these people and put in my own people, I can get sort of, a, you know, de defang this potential check on me. Um, and then we see, you know, the occasional interventions by presidents. Um, and again, President Trump actually, um, you know, removed a number of inspectors general from office. They are supposed to be removed only for cause. There's supposed to be an explanation to Congress if they but are if removed. if Congress is complicit, if Congress is complicit, then what? Mm, well, I mean, this is a, that's a, big question <laughs> that goes well beyond this particular point. But yeah, I mean, what we found is that recent presidents and actually President Obama did kind of the same thing when he removed an inspector general. The explanation is, well, because I wanted to. Mm. And then it's up to Congress to say, no, that's really not good enough um, mm. and to take action. But if Congress won't, then again, this is a, a place where presidential power rolls a little further ahead and makes it harder the next time for Congress to act, I think, because the uh, the boundary has been drawn in a slightly different place. Uh, and I, then I want to ask one more thing about this and before we say why it's not working, and that is the, um, the vertical separation of powers, like mm. states checking federal and federal checking states. Kim, go first. Yeah. So this is, you know, we always talk about horizontal separation of powers, you know, the different branches and how they check. But of course, these federal systems, the U.S. being one of them, also has this check that you describe also, you know, vertical separation of powers. You know, this is where it's worth remembering where the U.S. federal constitution came from. The states were already in existence. The states already had constitutions. This was an overlay on state constitutions. And so the federal constitution has a lot of gaps in it, precisely because it was assumed that those things would be done by states. And gradually over time, this balance has shifted, the Civil War being the biggest shift the Reconstruction Amendments that followed radically shifted the balance back toward the federal government without necessarily backfilling a lot of the powers that were in the states that now the federal government has without having a constitutional infrastructure for them. I, I say that meaning, among other things, the rise of the administrative state, right? It was assumed that the, the state-level governments would do all of that. So what we have is a system, you know, the healthy version of that system is that the states say, and when the federal government tells them to do something, we can't do that unless you pay us to do it. Like no unfunded mandates, right? So Congress, if you're going to use us, and then this, you know, the courts dive in and they say, we have as a system, you know, the healthy version of that system is that the states say, and when the federal government tells them to do something, we can't do that unless you pay us to do it. Like no unfunded mandates, right? So Congress, if you're going to use us, and then this, you know, the courts dive in and they say, the federal government can't commandeer the state governments for its own purposes. And so there's a lively debate about 
who gets to say what and who gets to order whom to do what, all that. Okay, so it's meant to be a check both on the power of states and on the power of the national government. But here, and this is the kind of monster lurking in the background of the whole conversation, if you have a system in which people's partisan affiliation matters more than their structural position, all of these checks and balances are very vulnerable because we've talked about the states like as if they have no party and the national government as if it has no party. But of course, if you get a national party that dominates the national, I mean, you get a certain political party that dominates the national government, it may be, or it could well be friendlier to the states that have the same partisan alliance back at state level and vice versa. Same is true if you get a Congress that is overwhelmingly of the president's party, or if you get judges now increasingly showing partisan divisions um, being reflecting the party that appointed them more than the law that preceded them. And so as partisanship has become much more polarized and much more intense, and as political loyalties tend to run more to parties than to offices, both the horizontal separation of powers and this vertical separation of powers really starts to crumble because it relies on states defending the prerogative of states and the federal government defending the prerogatives of the federal government. And if they learn that, aha, we of, of the of the let's call it the purple party are united against the let's say what's a neutral color in this country, let's say the orange yellow, party right. or the yellow party, right? <laughs> then you know, then all bets are off because then you get all kinds of allies that structurally speaking you're not supposed to have, and then the checks and balances become much weaker. So let's, I mean, let's talk about why it seems like it's not working right now. Um, and, you know, I think you're hinting at it uh, mm-hmm. when you talk about this partisanship, but you're also saying, I, I think that loyalty to the prerogatives of your own institution have to be very par- paramount. Like Congress has to stand up for itself. You can't disempower me. The president has to stand up for himself and say, you can't disempower me. And to the extent any one of those branches is saying, go ahead, do whatever you want, president, because you're my president. That's okay. I'm going to stop answering the question and get back to asking it. Andrew, why isn't it working right now? Both of you have gotten it, I think, pretty key answers. I'm going to throw in one more piece of the mix, which is implied uh, when we're talking about federalism, which is the, the importance of geography in American governance. Um, you know, the Constitution is built, as mentioned, on, you know, pre-existing states. Uh, even at the time of the Constitution's adoption, the United States was a big and kind of scattered country compared to prior places. And so coming up with some kind of mode of governance that would work for just that scale of geography was important. And one of the answers was to leave a lot of power local. Uh, and of course, through the Senate to make sure that the states were directly represented in the federal government. Uh, the Electoral College does some of that too. And so, you know, those institutional choices are particularly subject um, to being um, bent by regional and local affiliations, right? So once you, you know, have a, a Senate that's reliant on on the people in their given states, right, uh, with the population of senators, then it really matters what the partisan affiliation of that state is. Not that it didn't before to some degree, but really now with the two things, one, the nationalization of the political parties, right? And two, again, this notion of, of loyalty of the parties across the branches of government, 
uh, and very little differentiation between, say, uh, these days, you know, uh, you know, a Maine Republican, we can think of some counterexamples, and a, you know, a, a Texas Republican, right? Those used to be very different things back in, you know, the 1950s, even, you know, Democrat from Massachusetts and a Democrat from Florida used to look very different. Again, the parties have homogenized quite a lot. And what that means is you've got coalitions that can override these institutional concerns, both in terms of uh, what is appropriate for a state or locality to do and at the national level. And uh, um, again, that partisan loyalty tends to override institutional loyalty because let's face it, that's how the people in those chambers get elected. Yeah. And to the degree that voters don't hold people accountable for that choice, then we are going to keep winding up in this position. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Andrew Levage, Chair of the Department of Government and Legal Studies, the Thomas Brackett Reed Professor of Government at Bowdoin College, and Ken Shepley, Lawrence as Rockefeller Professor of Sociology and International Affairs in the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs and the University Center for Human Values. This program was pre-recorded on September 12th. No listener calls are being taken at this time. Kim, why does it seem like the Supreme Court is super powerful and nothing we do can stop them? Oh, this is such a good question. So, you know, the Supreme Court um, is knows now that it's operating in an environment where Congress is gridlocked and amendment is impossible. And so that means that functionally speaking, it has the last word. And of course, Supreme Court justices also have life tenure. There has been now for 40 years a kind of game going on to see who can appoint the youngest Supreme Court justices to keep them on the bench for the longest time. Um, and so what we now have is a kind of locked in quite young um, super conservative majority where six of the justices have been appointed by Republican presidents and three by Democratic presidents. And actually, frankly, for the first time in the history of the court, the court is always split along the same ideological lines that the parties are split along. You know, it used to be that constitutional law was sufficiently complicated that you'd get all kinds of unusual mixes between justices of the left and justices of the right, because not all constitutional questions easily fall along the same kind of left-right political lines that the political parties do. But that's disappeared. And we're now in an environment where the, the built-in checks on the Supreme Court no longer function. And so the court knows that. And so what you see is that they, they increasingly don't care what anybody <laughs> thinks about their decisions. And so it's kind of shocking for those of us who teach constitutional law, because literally, well, in fact, I stopped, I'll have to confess, I stopped teaching U.S. constitutional law some years ago because I'm as good as a coin flip on what the court's going to do. You know, literally expertise doesn't matter. Or if you know what the court's precedents are, or if you thought you knew what these judges were going to do, your best guess is literally What's the party of the president that appointed them? And what is that political party standing for? And I don't think that's law anymore, right? So I, you know, I find it very hard to teach the subject. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, a court that's unchecked in a system this partisan, where the court is just reading out party politics, is, in my view, a very dangerous situation to be in. Andrew, do you um, th they think, oh, did you want to say something to that? I'll go on to the next question. Well, no, I was just going to say that another aspect of it is this thing, the, the gridlock in Congress that Kim mentioned means that laws don't get updated, right? So we're working off, 
you know, laws from the 1970s, at best, 1990, when we're talking, for example, about environmental law, right? And so if you have 30 years of technological and other updates, but no statutory updates, you know, not surprisingly, uh, successive presidential administrations have tried to put in place regulations that try to enforce their own preferences with regards to how, you know, for example, air pollution should be uh, in uh combated and forced, how we should deal with climate change and the like, those regulations are issued by, by departments of the government. Um, and ultimately, they wind up in court, right? We're asking the court effectively to serve as the arbiter and to decide what a law in 1970 or written in 1990 actually means today. Uh, it's not quite constitutional originalism, but there's an aspect of that, right? The parsing that we're demanding that courts do. But you do see, of course, the partisanship. Kim mentioned, um, you know, the statute doesn't change um, between, you know, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, you know, in um, the Southwest and the Ninth Circuit out in California, right? The, the law says the same thing, but you can be guaranteed that if you take a case to those circuit courts, you will get a different answer right. about what the law means. And that is, unfortunately, almost entirely a, a function of who appointed the majority of judges in those circuits. And the Voting Rights Act would be another one. Uh, you know, that was an old law that had been kept sort of going and it finally. Yeah, but at least that one had been amended over time. Um, but now, now it can't. Now they can't do right. it. Right. right. But I might say that just to dive in on that question, nothing the Supreme Court has said about the Voting Rights Act prevents Congress from reenacting it, counting on Congress's inaction. And it's yeah. Congress paralysis, Congress's paralysis right. that does it. So then they write snooty opinions saying, oh, Congress could do anything it wants. Oh, it's so bad that Congress would act. If anyway, I can yeah. say, I mean, not all of this is the Congress's fault. Let me say one thing that is definitely the court's fault, which is in this wave of post-Watergate reform, which Andrew has mentioned, there were actually a lot of good things put in to kind of modernize the government to, to match the sort of situation we're in and to be concerned about an overreaching president, which Nixon was. And you know, you stare into the abyss of autocracy and you realize you've got to fix things. And Congress did a lot. One of the things it did was it um, it passed a law that said, if we pass a law and then an executive, you know, Congress, uh, sorry, a president comes in and they make a regulation. So they're general laws. Regulations get real specific down to earth. Exactly what does it mean in practice? And and you, Congress can't write in that level of detail. No, no legislature does. You need these regulations, but the regulations is where you can get partisan creep when the executive branch does its thing on the regulations. So Congress put in place this law that said, well, look, you know, if we think, Congress, that the, that the executive branch is doing something we would never have approved as an interpretation of this law we passed, we can veto the regulation with one House of Congress. And then the Supreme Court came along in this case called Chada in 1983 and said, oh, that's not how we make law in the U.S. The only way Congress can make law is for both houses of Congress to pass something and for it to be signed by the president. Okay, now what that means is that if Congress sees the president enacting a regulation, or the executive branch enacting a regulation, that in the Congress's view does not actually uphold the spirit of the law they passed, you can even get both houses of Congress saying, we don't like that, and the very president in oh. charge of the regulatory process can veto it. Yeah. So you functionally need two, you know, you need the supermajority override in both houses to counter the executive, right? So, and the Supreme Court's responsible for that. Yeah. So, and you know, they all have contributed to the dysfunction of the system. I don't want to let the Supreme Court off the hook. 
Well, right. And in fact, there are two very tangible examples of that outside the regulatory arena. One is with national emergencies and the other is with war powers, uh, both of which, again, were part of these sort of 70s reforms, National Emergencies Act and the War Powers Resolution. And they were originally designed to try to avoid presidential veto and therefore not require a two-thirds majority of each chamber to actually enact the will of a majority of Congress. Um, but after the Chadha ruling, Congress had to go back and amend those to make sure that, yeah, positive action by Congress would be required to overturn presidential action. Presidents, not surprisingly, have vetoed Congress's efforts to rein in the executive branch in that manner. And so unless you were to shift the the default outcome, that is to say, if the president says it's an emergency, that emergency doesn't last forever uh, until Congress acts. Rather, that emergency could expire and then Congress would have to put it back in place. And we would like to hope that if it were a serious enough emergency, Congress would do that. But it would go some way towards redressing that imbalance. So do you think that there are deliberate efforts underway by either party to actually undermine checks and balances and to weaken some of these fourth branch protections. You know, you think of the IRS and the dismantling of the IRS and some other things. Kim, what do you think? Oh, yes. Well, the thing I'm most worried about is actually the election machinery, because it always counted on you know, hundreds of thousands of citizens going out there and ensuring that elections were free and fair. And I think we saw in the 2020 election just how many, you know, selfless citizens were out there on the front lines and election workers who were only devoted to ensuring that every vote counted out there making sure the election was free and fair. We've now had, you know, two straight years of battering of that system, of threatening the election workers, of having, and, and many of these, the, the heads of these election operators at state level are very often elected. So we're now seeing people being put up as candidates who, who basically are pledging, if elected, I will ensure the, the party I'm not part of never wins, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Which is not how it's supposed to work. So I'm really worried, especially about the election machinery, because we don't have a lot of protections in place. It's operated all this time on good faith. And I think What we've seen over the last several polarizing decades is one independent institution after another falling victim to partisan takeover. We just talked about the courts where this has happened, and we're now talking about the election machinery. And if we lose the election machinery, it will be very hard to hang on to a democracy in which what the people want is actually what they get in an election. Mm. You know, it's just that, regardless of which political viewpoint you hold, we all ought to at least agree on that. And I'm afraid right now, we don't all agree on that. I have like the one big question left, which I hope you can maybe address <laughs> in your closing remarks, which is, what can we do about it as ordinary citizens? Like, what can we do to use our own power as a check and balance to sort of bring some of this back into alignment? So like I said, we're running out of time, and I want to give you each a couple minutes to say whatever else you want to say um, in addition to that question. So, a- Andrew, you go first. Great. Well, thank you. And thanks for having us on. This has been a fun conversation, one that's not likely to go away in its relevance as we move into this election year, into the next election year. We're going to need to be thinking about these issues. Um, and I think that does get to this question of, you know, what can we do about it? 
right? I think voting is a, a huge piece of that. Um, voting not only in presidential elections, but also in local elections and paying attention to things that happen at the state and local level, because as we've suggested, a lot of important policymaking goes on there, including the implementation of federal policy. You know, it's uh, very tempting to, you know, you see these big turnouts in say 2020 and you think, yeah, well, that's great. Democracy is working. Uh, but then you'll see a tiny turnout in a, you know, town council election or something like that. And you're, you begin to wonder because these things are important and you know, we need, I think, to be uh, paying attention to what our elected officials are doing. I'm actually not a huge fan of referendum government, um, which has become one solution for people to try to get around legislative gridlock uh, here in Maine and the city of Portland, maybe most dramatically, but otherwise to, you know, taking things to the ballot because we're mad that uh, the state legislature hasn't acted. I would prefer to see us active in uh, our interactions with our state legislatures over a longer period of time, you know, not to let them off the hook. Um, I do think we need to be attentive uh, to these questions as we're casting our vote, right? Um, our elected officials at all levels are extraordinarily responsive to what they think the public wants. They don't think that we care all that much about whether or not they're acting in a partisan way vis-a-vis -vis their own institution of government, whether they're cheerleading or attacking the president, for example, solely on the basis of partisanship. Um, frankly, they're right for the most part. They need not to be right about that. Thank you, Andrew. Wrap it up for us, Kim. Yeah. So one of the reasons why I jumped at the chance to be on this program is that it's the League of Women Voters, right? which is to say what we really need are nonpartisan citizens standing up for the right to vote because the ultimate check and the ultimate balance on all of this at every level are citizens voting and knowledgeable citizens voting. So it's absolutely crucial. I mean, this year is a big election year and people have to learn. I mean, I just to make a pitch to all the voters listening to this, you've got to put democracy above party. You know, you have to vote to ask yourself, not is this election going to be free and fair, but how do we guarantee that the next election is free and fair? And who are the candidates who support that view? That has to be more important than any other issue that people vote on because democracy is way more fragile than anybody I think has recognized. It's fragile here, it's been fragile around the world. And the only thing that pulls it back into place are knowledgeable voters voting for democracy. Thank you both so much. <laughs> Thank you to our guests this afternoon, Andrew Rudolevich, Chair of the Department of Government and Legal Studies and the Thomas Brackett Reed Professor of Government at Bowdoin College, and Kim Shepley, Lawrence S. Rockefeller, Professor of Sociology and International Affairs in the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs and the University Center for Human Values. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming worldwide at WERU.org. If you have a comment about the show, send it to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League's website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. You can subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org. We'll see you next month.